Hello everybody, nice to be back with you again in here. So last week I did a slightly unusual thing in that I uploaded a interview podcast and then I uploaded a bonus episode which was talking about sort of recent issues in policing. Um, that's actually gone down pretty well. Um, some people really like the interviews and some people prefer me rambling on and talking a lot of old police-related nonsense. Um, so I'm going to do that again because some people don't want to sit and listen to an interview for an entire hour or so. Um, and if you did the rambly stuff as well as the interview, then you're talking about probably the best part of an hour and a half. And that's quite a lot of time to invest in a single podcast. So I'm going to try that again. So um, in the interview podcast, I'm really excited to be talking to Stuart Davidson. And Stuart came to notice back in the 2000s where he anonymously wrote a book called Wasting Police Time, which was something of a bestseller and generated a lot of media interest. And it was lifting the lid on a lot of the ridiculous things that were going on in UK policing at that time. And I'm sorry to say are probably still going on in many parts of the country. He wrote that book under the pseudonym uh, PC David Copperfield. And he's now a serving police officer in Canada. So you can hear all about that. And now just to whet your appetite for future uh, podcasts, I've got some great guests, new guests lined up. Um, bless them. Lots of people actually asking to come on the podcast, which is really good. Others, I just basically um, stalk them uh, and, um, you know, browbeat them into submission. So the next uh, guest will be Graham Wettone, who's something of a public order expert. And Graham worked in managing large public order events in London for many years and is now a media commentator working for Sky News. So looking forward to hearing all about what Graham has to say about the way that police manage riots and public order and all of that kind of stuff. I'm then going to be doing uh, something of a two-parter, actually, all about the way that the police service historically and currently manages paedophiles, sex offenders, and um, looking at how that has changed over the years. So I'm going to be speaking to a fascinating guy called David Flanagan, who was involved many years ago in running the um, Obscene Publication Squad in London. Um, and then moved into the what was used to be called the paedophile unit. Um, uh, I'm also then going to be, in the next episode after that, I'm going to be interviewing a couple of individuals, including uh, someone who used to work for me many years ago in the Westminster Police, and he's going to talk all about how we manage sex offenders currently, uh, and I'm also going to be joined by another sex offender manager called Amy Hale, um, who is going to talk about that as well. So that's going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to um, to yeah, just uh, covering quite a lot of ground on that. And, uh, and just one more guest to kind of whet your appetite. Um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Jackie Hames, who those with slightly longer memories uh, will remember was a presenter on BBC Crime Watch for many years. Um, she was a Metropolitan Police detective and a um, good friend of uh, Jill Dando, who you will remember, uh, was uh, murdered uh, some years ago in London, many years ago in London, uh, the TV presenter. Uh, and uh, Jackie also has become embroiled in the 
Leveson inquiry, the hacked off campaign as she was a target for phone hacking during quite a long period of time. So really looking forward to hearing all about that. But first, I just want to go over one or two issues, police related issues from the last week, just to give you my thoughts um, and help you maybe understand what goes on behind the scenes. Um, Really important to reiterate again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. All of this stuff is just my opinion. Okay. Um, it's based on many years experience of policing in a variety of different roles. So I feel that I'm reasonably well qualified to have an opinion, but it is only my opinion. So that is caveated. Um, everything I say is caveated with that. So the first story I just want to touch on is something that's been quite prominent in the news over the last sort of uh, couple of months, really. In fact, it goes right back to sort of the back end of 2020, but it's uh, raised its head again in the last week or so. And this is the story about uh, our Metropolitan Police Superintendent, uh, Robin Williams. Uh, she's a black superintendent uh, who uh, was awarded the Queen's Police Medal in 2003. Um, and she came to prominence uh, for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately. And the long and the short of it, and, and I'm basing all of this that I say on, on the basis of what I've read in the media. So I was not involved in the case, and there may well be more to this than meets the eye. So, um, But based on what has been reported in the press, uh, Robin uh, was sent a... Uh, child abuse video, I believe, by her sister, who was in turn sent that video by her boyfriend. And the long and the short of it is that uh, Superintendent Williams failed to disclose the fact that she had been sent that video. And it all came out as a result of a another individual who had been sent the same video, um, presumably making some disclosure, an investigation was conducted, and then it turned out that uh, Robin Williams had been sent that video, had been one of, I believe, 17 people who'd been sent the same video. As a result of, of that, she was uh, charged with possession of a child abuse video, uh, went to court, was found guilty and was sentenced to 200 hours community service and that was back in November 2019. Um, as a result of, of that conviction at court, she was then placed, I believe, on the sex offenders register and, and consequently she was sacked from the police for gross misconduct. Uh, the uh, she went, I believe, to the court of appeal to try and appeal the criminal conviction, which was unsuccessful, and then she appealed against her um, sacking, and and this week it uh, it transpired that that appeal was successful and she's been reinstated in the job, so. That has caused, as you can imagine, uh, something of a Ferrari in that you've now got a serving police officer who is 
on the sex offenders register who has been convicted of something which on the face of it uh, appears to be quite a serious offence. Uh, and, and rather depressingly, the issue of her ethnicity has been brought into this and a lot of people saying, you know, things like the only reason that she's been allowed back in the job is because she's a black female, blah, blah, blah. Uh, lots of other people saying uh, it's absolutely outrageous, she should have been sacked. Um, and other people feeling sort of quite sympathetic for the situation that she's found herself in. Uh, so I think I'm going to probably take a position that might surprise a few people with this and and say that in my view, for what it's worth, I don't think she should ever this should, should ever have been brought to court in the first place. Now I haven't I haven't seen all of the evidence. Um, but certainly when I was a DI in a child abuse unit, back in the Westminster Police, we dealt with quite a few issues like this, where if someone has sent an image that they haven't asked for or they haven't gone out and searched for, they've been sent an image or a video by a third party and, and then they've uh, probably been quite horrified and then perhaps they've deleted it or perhaps they've just ignored it and then... Uh, it becomes apparent that this has happened and then they get they find themselves investigated and very frequently arrested because possession of a child abuse image or a video is an absolute offence. So basically what that means is the very fact that you've got that image, it, you don't need to prove anything else. You've either got the image or you haven't got the image. Now, I would suggest that the the correct course of action for her in that situation should have been that she should have disclosed it straight away. But clearly she found herself in an almost impossible position because by doing so she would effectively um, drop her sister in the shit um, because that is an absolute offence of distributing a child abuse image. So she obviously had a, a massive conflict of loyalties and it would appear that she's probably effectively buried her head in the sand on this one, hoping that it'll all just go away, and 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 it hasn't gone away. So my general sense here is that somewhere along the line, common sense has 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 gone missing. I think there's a there's an absence of common sense here, and. Whoever investigated that, I suggest, should have asked themselves the question, what was the intention of this officer? Was this, an, was this officer, is this officer a paedophile? I think we can all probably agree that she's not. Does this officer deserve to be on the sex offenders register because someone else stupidly sent her an image uh, or a video? Uh, I, I would argue that that is not the purpose of that legislation, the sex offenders um, register is there for for people who are a danger to children and I wouldn't put her in that category personally. So um, clearly the fact that she was a police officer 
um, she should have disclosed it straight away and she should have effectively um, you know, fired her sister in and that would have caused obviously a massive family rift. But in the end, it's caused a much worse problem because her sister got convicted, the boyfriend got convicted, she got convicted and she lost her job, albeit that she's been reinstated now. So I do have some sympathy with Robin, I've got to say, because um, some years ago, and this is going back about five years, I think, a very similar thing happened to me um, where I was sent a video of um, something that which immediately I thought, oh, my God, what on earth is this? And, and I, won't, I won't name the person who sent it to me, but it was, it was a, a friend who I knew vaguely in another part of the country. And he had sent me an image that was, I would suggest, borderline indecent involving a child. I had a massive panic when that was sent to me. It was on, I think it was on WhatsApp. I had a massive panic. Um, and, and I thought, oh my God, what do I do? And there was an overwhelming temptation for me to just immediately delete that. But of course, deleting something off your phone doesn't make it go away. It's still there. You can still find it. Digital forensics uh, team could still find that. Um, so I made the decision immediately that I would disclose the fact that, that this had been sent to me. So I rang up the superintendent who led on those types of investigations, uh, the... A child abuse investigation team who deal, deal with online offences and I said listen I've been sent this video um, it's really I don't know I don't know what to make of it I haven't actually watched it all the way through but I've watched enough of it to to make me realize that it's very very inappropriate at the very least it's in a deeply inappropriate and possibly illegal so he said okay that's fine um, bring the phone into the team they'll take the phone off you they'll get it examined and they'll make a decision as to whether it constitutes a criminal offence or not. So I had the humiliating experience of having to travel to that office where the, those officers routinely deal with those offences and hand my own phone over and they literally put it in an evidence bag, which was the most humiliating experience to have to, you know, go through that process as a serving officer. And um, and anyway, long story short, uh, they, they turned the phone around very, very quickly within 24 hours and, and they established that it was not an indecent video. It was very, very questionable uh, in terms of the taste of the video. It was, it was, I won't describe it, it doesn't really matter, but it was, it was a young child who was naked in it uh, with, I believe, either his father or his mother who were doing things with him that I thought were just wrong. And, and I just didn't really, really didn't want to have it on my phone. But the humiliation of having to do that was, was quite uh, significant. Um, and, and the looks on the faces of the detectives as they were bagging up my phone was just horrible because I, you know, maybe it's just me being kind of overthinking things, but they were looking at me as if to say, yeah, yeah, there's no smoke without fire here. I think you've been doing something you shouldn't have been doing or something like that. But anyway, as it, as it, as it was, uh, there was no issues. But so anyway, you know, does Robin William, did Robin Williams deserve to go to court and find herself on the sex offenders register for that? No, I don't think she did personally. Um, others will disagree with that. But I just think in this day and age, um, 
we've got very little control over what someone chooses to send us. Um, the decision that she made right at the outset, I think, was the wrong decision. Um, but there you go. She's uh, going to have to live with the consequences. And uh, I've no doubt that this will not be the last we hear about that story. But my advice to you would be, or to anyone would be, if you get sent something by text or by video that is clearly uh, of an illegal nature, and some people think this is really funny, they think it's a bit of a lark to, to send disgusting videos to each other, um, just remember that uh, extreme pornography is a criminal offence now. So things like sex with horses or um, sex with animals or, you know, um, deeply disturbing uh, pornography is illegal now. So um, don't assume that if someone sends that to you, that uh, you can just sort of ignore that because it's a criminal offence. Possessing it is a criminal offence. So I would strongly urge you to disclose that to the authorities, to the police, um, if that happens to you, because the last thing you want is to be scooped up in that type of investigation because you just don't know what other investigations are going on behind the scenes that you that will lead to your door eventually. So do the sensible thing and disclose it straight away. So uh, the next issue that I just want to talk about, staying on the theme of sexual offences, is that in the last week uh, the government have disclosed the woefully low charge and prosecution rate for rape, the offence of rape. Uh, and uh, in 2020, I think year ending, 2020-2021, uh, that uh, charge and prosecution rate has dropped to a dismally low figure of 1.6%. So only 1.6% of all rapes result in a charge, which is pretty disastrous uh, on, on every conceivable level. So just to put that in context of the numbers, um, rape allegations themselves tripled tripled so you didn't hear that you did hear that correctly between um 2012 and 2020 rape allegations in the UK went from approximately 15,000 a year to over 50,000 a year and that was largely as a result of two things one was the the Savile uh, impact the Jimmy Savile revelations and all of the other sexual uh, abuse revelations that fell out of that from from that inquiry as well as a lot of other related inquiries and the uh, the me the global me too movement that um, you know the Harvey Weinstein fallout from from that where where you know women were much more comfortable about coming forward and describing a you know, a normalisation of sexual, predatory sexual behaviour by men over a very, very long period of time. And as a result of all of that, um, the numbers of rapes, rape allegations have, as I say, tripled. Um, and there's been lots of um, tearing of hair and gnashing of teeth uh, at a political level about that. Um, so Priti Patel, Home Secretary, and the Justice Secretary, Robert 
Buckland came out and described how they were, quote, deeply ashamed of that and promised action. But in common with so many other utterances from politicians around law and order and policing and public safety in the last number of years, uh, what Priti Patel and Robert Buckland glaringly uh, neglected to point out was that there are very good reasons why um, rape uh, outcomes have become so poor in the last number of years. And the main elephant in the room, as always, is uh, the impact of austerity and the loss of uh, 20,000 officers and 23,000 police staff and lots of other professionals. So so when you think about the police staff who have been lost, um, it's, it's from every single function. So there's lots and lots of things that go on in the police that... Uh, are done by people other than police officers. So that'll be people who work in digital forensics teams, people who work on intelligence teams. Uh, there'll be civilian investigators who work on serious uh, sexual offences teams. There's all sorts of people who have just been lost from the workforce, as well as uh, all of those police officers. Um, there's also been a 28% drop in detective numbers nationally Investing, uh, investigating serious crime and homicide. Between 2010 and 2019, there was a 28% drop in detective numbers. So um, when you combine all of that with a increase of, you know, a threefold increase in the number of rape allegations, then it's hardly surprising that we end up in the situation uh, that we're in. So uh, there's not going to be any uh, quick fixes to any of this because a lot of it is about resources and not just resources, it's about skilled, highly skilled, experienced officers who, who understand what they're doing. So I just thought it might be helpful for me to explain um, what, in my experience at least, um, a good rape investigation uh, looks like. Um, because I was involved in investigation of many, many rapes um, over you know quite a long period of time, and uh, both rapes of adults uh, as well as children. So the the way that rape is investigated for both adults and children is is slightly different. However, the basic principles remain the same, and it's those basic principles that I'm going to maybe try and help you understand a bit better now. So. It's important to say, uh, in the same way that uh, no chain is stronger than its weakest link, no rape investigation is better than each of the individual steps in order to uh, bring about a successful investigation and a successful outcome at court. If any one of these steps um, is broken or is weak or, or just doesn't exist, then everything else will fall apart. So whilst you can, whilst Avon and Somerset, uh, who were on the news talking about, they've got this thing, they were 42nd, I believe, out of 43 forces for rape um, resolutions. So they were really bottom of the pile, pretty much bottom of the pile. And they've assembled a load of academics to help them understand how to improve uh, outcomes around rape. Uh, I, I slightly despair whenever I hear about things like that, because really we know through experience what works 
when it comes to investigating rape and bringing about successful outcomes. So um, taking it right from the start, really. Um, so when a rape is disclosed for the very first time by a victim, it's incredibly important that uh, that victim receives a very prompt and sensitive response from uh, the very first person that they speak to, whether that's someone on the phone, whether that's someone face to face, or whether that's, um, you know, um, disclosing it to walking up to police officers in the street and telling them what's happened. So the treatment that that victim receives right from the very start uh, is absolutely critical in terms of building confidence and creating an environment where you can secure and preserve evidence which will then assist any future investigation. So uh, whilst all frontline officers are not necessarily sexual offence trained, many of them are, um, and, and uh, ensuring that that victim is then quickly signposted to an officer who is uh, trained and accredited in supporting a rape victim, ensuring that they know what to do in terms of the initial response, in terms of the uh, preserving forensic evidence, um, the advice that they give a victim around uh, not washing and um, putting away sort of clothes or bedding or or whatever that may have come into contact, physical contact with the offender, with the alleged offender, all of that kind of stuff, and then ensuring that there is a, a really strong wraparound care given to that victim right from the first moment. Okay, so, so let's assume that all of that has happened and we've had our victim who has been given correct advice by a, a knowledgeable and sympathetic initial responder and they are now in our care. Okay, so... In the same way that um, I've learned in business now that time kills deals. So in business, the longer a deal is strung out for, the less likely it is to come to a successful conclusion. Exactly the same way, time kills investigations and it particularly kills uh, serious sexual offences cases because you've got a victim who is probably... Um, extremely traumatised by what's happened to them, probably feeling a great deal of confusion, guilt and shame. Um, you've got forensic evidence which will disappear quickly, um, both from the victim as well as from the offender or offenders, and you've got crime scenes that will get cleaned up. So uh, ensuring that you can preserve, secure and preserve physical evidence from relevant crime scenes really quickly and getting a skilled crime scene investigator down there to do that is incredibly important. So I'm not going to go through every single stage of a rape investigation because that would require probably multiple podcasts just for that alone. So I'll just talk about the basic building blocks, those links in the chain that without, without if any one of them falls down, the whole thing falls apart. So so we've, we've really talked about how important that initial response to the victim is, wrapping your arm around the victim's shoulder to show that you're taking it incredibly seriously. But the other basic building blocks are um, the approach to a suspect or suspect. So identifying that suspect really quickly 
Um, it may be very obvious who the suspect is. It might be a partner or an ex-partner, in which case uh, that bit of the jigsaw is is pretty straightforward. But it, it might be that the the suspect is not immediately known, and will have to be um, there'll be some detective work in order to try and identify that person using a variety. It could be financial transactions. It could be some um, telecoms uh, contact communication, social media communication between the victim and the suspect. Uh, could be CCTV from a bar or a nightclub or or whatever, all of these different things. But generally speaking, um, it's usually fairly obvious who the, who the suspect is. Uh, so getting that person um, into custody as quickly as possible in order to secure and preserve evidence from them, physical evidence, uh, forensic evidence, um, seize electronic devices, all of that kind of stuff is incredibly important, but it's got to be done quickly. Uh, the longer you string that out for, um, the more likely it is that we're going to lose that evidence. Okay, so then you've got the uh, in, in sort of police station cell block procedure. So you, again, you're talking about uh, building a good rapport with your suspect, um, ensuring that you've got a good investigative inter interview strategy, that you've got all of your evidence ready to put to them in a way that is compelling and puts them under sort of a certain amount of pressure uh, to show that you are you are in possession of, a, of already a fairly strong case. So um, the next basic building block, I would suggest in my experience, is to ensure that you've got a... a sexually offences trained uh, crime prosecution service CPS lawyer who you can have a consultation with um, as as early as possible. Really, really important to, to ensure that the CPS lawyer is a specialist sexual offences trained lawyer who understands these cases, has dealt with many dozens, probably hundreds of them, and will be able to advise on evidential gaps that need to be filled in order to bring the case to a successful conclusion. So again, um, the next stage you want to be thinking about is how we uh, safeguard that victim throughout the whole journey of the investigation from start to end. So depending what's happened to a suspect, it might be that our suspect has been released on bail. It might be that suspect has been charged with sort of conditions attached it might be that they've been charged and remanded in custody but whatever whatever the case is uh, the victim needs to feel confident that that she or he is safe and uh, is not going to be um, interfered with by the suspect so suspect management during bail or pre-trial uh, period is incredibly important and maintaining that ongoing relationship with your victim to reassure them and keep them on board, keep them on track um, and, and ensure that they're not being sort of talked out of it by um, friends or family or mum of boyfriend or whoever because very often um, friends or family of the suspect will try and interfere in these in these cases in order to try and persuade victims to change their mind. So maintaining that kind of ongoing support for the victim right up to uh, a trial is incredibly important and then ensuring of course that they're given uh, tons and tons and tons of support um, through any criminal justice process. So I appreciate that's like a really really massive fast forward through an ideal I suppose rape investigation um, but 
the reality is, unfortunately, that, that these offences are incredibly complex to investigate sometimes. Uh, very often, it's, it's unfortunately one, one person's word against another. Um, and, 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 and also very often, the, the initial disclosure from the victim, either to police or to a third party, to, to mum or to a girlfriend or whatever, um, happens some time after the offence. Uh, it could be days or it could be weeks, in which case um, vital forensic evidence has been lost, um, social media messages have been deleted, phones have been discarded, um, and, as I say, time kills investigations. So, clearly, um, a lot of these investigations today have become a lot more complex because of all of the technology involved. So, your typical victim will probably have, um, you know, an iPad, maybe a couple of uh, mobile phones, uh, multiple social media accounts, um, and there is an, an absolute requirement now from a criminal disclosure point of view to ensure that there is no material uh, available to police that um, either undermines the victim's account or supports the defence case. And that is the reason why it is now kind of routinely required for victims to submit to examination of their mobile phones and electronic devices. So that has a dual impact when you ask a victim to do that. Um, sometimes victims will have stuff on their mobile phones that they're not particularly proud of, um, not necessarily anything connected to the actual rape uh, allegation itself, but, but there might be stuff on that phone that, they're, that they want to keep private. So that's a, sometimes an, an, inhibit, an inhibiting barrier to handing over your mobile phone. Um, other times it can be just the sheer inconvenience of losing your mobile phone and everyone, you know, it's like your, it's like your third arm now, isn't it? And um, victims don't like to have to give up their mobile phones. So um, th there's often backlogs in cases. Uh, digital, digital forensics teams are often overwhelmed by demand. Uh, mobile devices are carrying uh, and storing uh, massive quantities of data. So again, the impact of austerity on all of that was to reduce the amount of money available to policing in order to buy the very best technical solutions to extract data quickly from electronic devices and present it evidentially to, to an investigator. Um, ideally, in an ideal world, you'd want that phone examined and the evidential output given to an investigator whilst the suspect is in custody in order to um, support uh, an interview, whereas very often that device will go into a backlog somewhere and it may be many days, possibly even weeks before it even gets looked at, which again, remember, time kills investigations. So, I think my, my basic thoughts on all of that stuff are that removing the best part of 30% of the police workforce, uh, as well as a huge amount of money, um, and the consequent uh, reduction in resources to the legal profession, to the justice system, to the crime prosecution service, 
and all of the various support structures that work as a self-supporting ecosystem that is designed to assist victims get justice for rape or for that matter for any other criminal offence that they are unfortunate to become the victim of. Uh, all of that has pretty much collapsed. So before Priti Patel and the Justice Secretary um, start wringing their hands about all of this and promising action, well, I would suggest that they look to their own party who were the architects of all of that before they start trying to find someone to blame. So I'll leave that with you now. Um, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Stuart Davidson. I certainly enjoyed chatting to him.